Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are here with a special interview episode. Oh, snap. We are getting ready to get jiggy <laughs> with Andy Fry, who is pretty fly for a white guy, talking about his new book, which is hella good. No, stop. Stop. Hey, what? That is awful. Hey, talk to the hand. I knew you were going to say talk to the hand or you are going to say don't go there because we're, <laughs> we're wrapped up in the 90s already, I guess. So Yeah. yeah. What's up? Well, what's up, Andy Fry? <laughs> so, dear Shirley listeners, we are here talking with the author of a new book called 90 Days in the 90s. I don't think it's given up too much to say there's a little time travel involved and obviously going back to the last decade of the millennium. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We both read it and had a blast, man. Hey, I hope, I'm glad you liked it. It was fun to write. So tell us about you, Andy. You, um, you've you done sports writing. You've had stuff with uh, Rolling Stone and what was the other man? ESPN. ESPN. Tell us about your uh, kind of your history in the writing world. Yeah, I mean, I started off doing a nine, nine to five like a, a lot of people. And, um, you know, writing was always a hobby in the background. So when I, for, I, I, the, I wrote for ESPN for about six years. So most of it, especially in the beginning, was extreme sports. So you probably remember page two and all the wacky stuff that was on page two. And one of the cool things was at the, at the same time I was writing, so probably like 2011 to 2000, let's say 16, uh, one of my favorite features there, like there's a lot of stupid stuff. And some of it was that Disney has the Jonas Brothers. So they're like, hey, we own ESPN. Let's put let's put the Jonas Brothers on ESPN. <laughs> we'll basketball. We'll have we'll, we'll play pickup with um you know Bonzi Wells or whoever. <laughs> go back a bit, you know, whoever we can find to hang out with him for we'll pay him enough. But but right. like, I love the fact that Duff, Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses, the uh bass player, who's a great writer, he actually wrote a book on his own. He would write a Wednesday column that I would always read. And I think it must have been when he was with Velvet Revolver. He'd go around the country, talk about like, you know, playing live, but also talking like football trash talk with the lead singer Pantera. Probably remember the lead singer Pantera is a, a Saints fan and and Duff from, you know, from Pacific Northwest. He's a, a Seahawks fan. And, you know, they kind of lay it out as like we would with our friends. You know, you could go visit one of your friends from college or I don't know, you're you're in the printing business and you go to a printing conference, but you're going to end up talking about music and sports. And that's how I think a lot of Americans are. So, uh, yeah, I just kind of follow that. Like, I consider myself a fan first. And, I, you know, I, I would have written about log tossing championships for ESPN. I just kind of wanted to write about things that I thought were fun and fascinating. And um, so the first couple of articles I wrote for them were extreme sports. Uh, I actually did cover uh, Southside Catholic football for a while in the fall of 2011, I would basically had a game a weekend and would cover like, I don't know, like uh, St. Rita's versus Mount Carmel and kind of all the parochial stuff that happens here in Chicago. Uh, and then I, I had a stint just covering like, I mean, what it was was aging rock stars and talking about sports. I, I first started out with Billy from Smashing Pumpkins, who was starting a wrestling league. He actually just started another wrestling league now that his band is playing again. A guy, he's a guy who always needs to keep busy, I guess. Wow. And I was blogging for a site that was owned by the Tribune, and I was the one person who got the interview with him. I think just because uh, our community manager at, at, at the site was like, "Hey, if you want to interview uh, Billy from Smashing Pumpkins about the wrestling league, you know, here's here's who you, who you contact. Don't bug me about it. Good luck." <laughs> you know, l literally within within an hour, I'm writing an email like you know with ESPN in the subject line, thinking I, I maybe I'll get a bite on this, and I did. And we talked about just sports fandom and why he's starting this wrestling league. And I you know, eventually kind of played Frogger and hopped to a couple other interesting rockers uh, who 
talk, wanted to talk to me about sports like Noel from Oasis had a new band at the time, which he still has now. I got to talk, I got to do an email exchange with Morrissey from the Smiths, you know, the, the great Morrissey, the fussy Morrissey and uh, talked about English football and some things like that. And I just kind of, you know, I just kind of took it project by project until about the, probably the summer 2016. And I made a contact at Rolling Stone, who was kind of their new sports editor. And it, I lucked out that he was a, a Cubs fan from Chicago. So, he, you know, and this is 2016 when the Cubs were awesome. And they won. We're going to go on to win the World Series. So I just always, um, you know, I, I was in sales and account management for a better part of 20 years. I just kind of used that sink or swim uh, impulse of like reaching out with people following up you know, throwing ideas out there, not getting offended with people like editors would say no. And it's opened a lot of doors, a lot of cool, a lot of cool interviews and just a lot of cool, you know, as a freelance writer, I've got to do a lot more probably than most freelancers get to do. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the the brunt of my uh, sports writing career, I guess you could say. You've talked to athletes about music and you've talked to musicians about sports and you've talked fashion. to Tom Brady about fashion. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> We need to hear about those I was going to say, I'm kind of fascinated by the let's talk about the thing that's not related to what you're famous for kind of idea. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, maybe that's why I ended up at, at Forbes. I had a, when, I, when things were kind of floundering at, at, at um, in about 2018 at Rolling Stone, they had a new a new buyer and they kind of rebranded and just went like, they kind of dumped a lot of the pop culture that wasn't music related, went straight to music. So I kind of saw the writing on the wall. I just looked around and talked to some people and I ended up at, at Forbes as a freelancer there. So the cool part about that is it's it's you know right for the sports vertical, basically the sports business vertical. So sports business can be different things to different people. Um, I mean, the first um, really well-known athlete I interviewed there for that was in May or like June of 2018, right after I started there, interviewed Johnny Bench, and he was doing a. I must have been in May because you maybe in April. You may remember this about five six years ago. Major League Baseball decided that everybody was going to have everybody was going to play opening day on this the same day, so all 30 teams were playing. Uh, so Kingsford Charcoal had this commercial with a couple different players, but I remember the one that I I saw I had seen a couple of times was uh, Johnny Bench was like literally sitting at a desk cold calling baseball fans one by one like Hey, you're gonna be there. <laughs> hey, you're gonna be there. <laughs> you're gonna be there. Hey, I'll see you there. You know, you're gonna be there. You know, I thought it was funny because I was in sales and you know I I pitched stocks and currencies and I smiled and dialed you know way too long and I just kind of like two and two connected. I thought, well, if I could search online for the uh, because sometimes you look at like Business Wire, there's, there's sites that have the press releases that become the basis of an article. I knew that much. And I figured if I could find out who the uh, the PR person, the publicist, publicist on this campaign is, and I stalk him a little bit, maybe, you know, I get a, I mean, an interview with Johnny Bench. And I, I found the person and just kind of pitched him on a Friday and her back on a Monday. And they said, yeah, you know, um, you, you, we'll get you 10 minutes or 15 minutes or so with Johnny Bench on the phone. And, you know, it'd be great if you mentioned the sponsor. You don't have to talk about how great Kingsford Charcoal is, but... He'll probably tell, want to talk to you about barbecue because he's that he's that guy. So uh, that's kind of the blueprint for business, sports business. And, you know, Tom Brady started his brand. So it's kind of the same, kind of the reverse. I got an email probably even like December. You know, it, a lot of a lot of times it's like, oh, here's a press release. We know you're going to want to write about this. Go write an article. And it's kind of every once in a while, I'm a wise guy and I will respond and be like, yeah, if you get me Tom Brady on the phone for 10 minutes, I'll, I'll be glad to write an article about this. And a lot of times the you know, I never hear anything. I just assumed I wouldn't. And like four days later, the publicist comes back and is like, yeah, we can get you 10 minutes on like audio only Zoom or, or the phone with Tom Brady. And I was like, you know, holy crap. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I got to ask the question, were you really wearing Philadelphia Eagles? No. Well, the thing is like they put me on audio <laughs> only. I wasn't allowed to see him, you know. So, 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 I mean, maybe it's because he's way more famous than 
you know, he's too famous for me to see what he looks like coming, you know, wearing a sweatshirt on a. <laughs> but that's what they did to me. So I was like, oh, can you see me? And he's like, no, but I can hear you. And I was like, oh, well, it's too bad because I got, you know, my my Nick Foles jersey on and my Eagles <laughs> and he he laughed or pretended to laugh and was, you know, gracious about it. And he's like, why are you doing this to me, man? And so uh, I did say, like, don't hang up. I think I'm a you know, Eagles fan from Philadelphia. But, you know, his brand is all about apparel so of course like either he's trying to be a designer or what i figured was i'm going to ask him about this like all right you're starting this brand with you hired a designer you got business people behind you like i'm assuming you have to be coachable like you were when you started bill belichick tell me about is that true or whatever and he was like yeah you know i have like visions for my brand and obviously he has a style that you know he's i don't know he's probably made a hundred million dollars plus and he can afford whatever pairs of shoes he wants or whatever but uh he wanted to kind of do two things um which i thought was cool he wanted like his his brand is like like I'm wearing kind of a plain Gap shirt right now, but you know his shirts and I guess his apparel is like kind of plain and earth tones. And the other really cool part is like instead of getting Gronk to pitch his stuff, he's got a most. If you look at the website for Brady Man, it's mostly college athletes. It might be all college athletes. A lot of them are from the University of Michigan, of course. But it's like uh, the star quarterback whose name I forget, a tennis player, a track uh, athlete. Um, there's like a swimmer, like. He could he could obviously go out and get I don't know Kevin Durant to like pitch his stuff, but he picked college guys and uh, men and women um, and just kind of people that he wanted to kind of bring it back down to earth. And I thought that was cool. And that that was sort of the approach is his brand and everybody's different. Like so, I get to talk to all these great athletes about what are you doing? And you know, I've talked to Lindsey Vaughn a couple of times, and you know, her she's uh she's got a bunch of different businesses and her products tend to be very high-end ski related stuff, like a little bit of luxe, but also high performance. And then I just talked to uh, Derek Jeter and I've talked to GSP about their stuff and their, their stuff is kind of more bare bones, like Brady stuff. So everybody's doing something different. It's, it's great to kind of people talk to me. I mean, I get to talk to them about the sports too. I never do with Jim Gray and be like, well, tell me about the time you missed the pass and <laughs> embarrass your team. Cause I'm, I'm not that kind of person, but <laughs> I just want to talk to him about the nuts and bolts of like, hey, what else are you doing? I know that you are in investing or real estate or you got this fashion brand. And, you know, it, I think it disarms them because, I mean, we journalists can, you know, we got a bad reputation in general. Just do what we do. You can be that person that annoys the heck out of somebody. But I think if you talk to people like people, talk about what they're doing, you know, you get a good response. and You get some gifts in the conversation that make for good writing and, you know, everything else. So kind of to touch base on the book, you know, that your your main character starts off uh, kind of Wall Street type yeah. of person who ends up leaving that and going to own a record store that she's inherited. What inspired you to start with this process? Was that the was that the, the seed or was it something else? And that came along later. I think the, the only seed was uh, originally I, I just had this idea about five years ago that uh, I think I was listening to my Spotify playlist, the, the 90s playlist, and I just had a recurring thought that was like, oh, it'd be cool to go back to the 90s. Like if you could time travel to to, to see the show, you know, like talk about our, our wish list con concerts or sporting events that I'd love to go back and see that a second time. And I just as a writer, some of us writers do this thing where we come up with we come up with great ideas all the time. Sometimes in the middle of the night, you had a couple of beers, you're at the bar and you grab a bar napkin is sort of the stereotypical thing. Like, oh, you write the you know, the, the the idea that founded Microsoft on a bar napkin, like that, that's the story. <laughs> but you got to test yourself and realize um, if you come up with a great idea, like, do you care about it in two weeks? And I, I kind of tested myself out that that way. And just I still cared about it. Thought, oh, you know, I don't know how to write a book, but I want to 
try the plot. I had the plot and probably an idea of some characters. And then like literally what Darby, uh, the main character in 90 Days in the 90s comes is uh, a little bit some from my experience from bouncing on different jobs and then ending up really doing what I want to do or what I was supposed to do. No longer in sales. I don't work for a corporation anymore. So some of that informs the character. But I really had to like, I mean, it's the the end product of the book is completely different from the first draft. Like I, I didn't know what I was doing when I first started writing it. Uh, had to tweak some things, had to make it more readable and shorten it a lot. And then yeah, I had a, I hired an editor who, who told me to change it from first person to third person. And, you know, a lot of those things just kind of evolved. So when you are kind of figuring out what the heck you're supposed to do and you want to put this theme in, you create some dialogue, you're like, oh, this idea would be cool. But what if I did this? And you make discoveries. So that was really like, you know, I can go through all of it, but that, that I just kind of made a lot of discoveries and kind of it took place in Chicago, so I know Chicago, know the music scene, know the sports scene, and just kind of played with it a lot and, and made it work. So there are tons of 90s references throughout, mostly music. Uh, you got a few sports, touch on sports just a bit here and there. I mean, you, you get what you would expect. You get some Nirvana references, some Stone Temple Pilots. Stone Temple Pilots, yeah. yeah. Which and we just we just got finished covering Stone Temple Pilots core versus Alice in Chains dirt yeah. as to which two which of those two albums was the best, um, and so it's kind of neat knowing that both of those guys not too terribly long after '96 were gone, and so you know the idea that you could go back and listen to Alice in Chains play with Lane Staley singing or or yeah. with you know, STP with Scott Weiland singing. That's an intriguing thought. I would want to go do that. Your character's got a band that she, when she begins her journey, she wants to go check them out to kind of see why they never became what they, what she thought they should be called dreaded letters. Yeah. So I know that's not a real band, but yeah. is, did you, is there a band that you can think of from that time period where you were like, man, I thought these guys were going to be, huge and then kind of nothing happened well actually so um just a slight correction darby is uh like when she 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 you see her in the beginning she um kind of like in the first chapter she's in this record store that she inherited from her uncle martin her life in new york fell apart you know like her she made a couple of bad crypto trades and her broke up with her fiance so now she's running the run this record store kind of getting a taste of like being back in chicago and actually, Dreaded Letters is a band that, you know, she saw them once when they were nobodies, and now they're one of the biggest bands of all time. So I I, I kind of, I mean, stylistically, I just thought of like, uh, so one of the bands that maybe is close to them is Slater Kenny. Slater Kenny's not super famous, or, but like, they're just at Riot Fest here in Chicago, and I'm glad that they can open up a show, you sell tickets, and the tickets are gone in 20 minutes. And it could be because Carrie was on Portlandia for all those years, and a lot of people know one of the members of the band from that. But uh, I kind of combine that with like, I think about, I like, I have a sort of an interest in rock trios, like the Jimi Hendrix experience and, and the police, you know, kind of like the, in the Holy Triumphant Rush. I'm not a huge Rush fan, but there's this dynamic that trios have that I think a lot of other bands don't have. And I just, other than Green Day, there weren't, and maybe the presence, there weren't really too many. Uh, there were, strangely, there are a lot more four, four and five person bands and that maybe doesn't get down to that. But yeah, I just kind of wanted to uh, eventually I, I created the band. I think I had, an, I had hired an editor to kind of work with me on some things. And at first she kind of pushed like, well, she's gone back in time and she's going to like is, is the real reason that she wants to go discover like, you know, a does she play the lottery and win the jackpot or does she discover the band? And yeah, I wanted to have some of that in there, but not really have it be about the band. But Darby's journey is really personal so that when 
kind of stapled to that when she goes back in to the mid 90s like yeah she's not trying to prevent 9-11 from happening or she's not feeling like she goes needs to go back further to kill hitler or anything I, that's what we see a lot in time travel fiction and movies and that there's this big giant thing that they have to, to solve or prevent and i guess i wanted to take it a different way like i just wanted to be like maybe it's a generational thing like i think of movies like that we love from the 90s like days and confused and pulp fiction where you just hang out for the hang out for a day with the characters both of those movies take place over the span of 24 hours and my book does not but i wanted to i knew that one of the things i wanted to do was the same dynamic like there's these characters they're really cool they're doing cool stuff and you just want to hang out with them and i thought you know i want to see if i could pull this off in writing a book that you feel like you're tagging along you guys can tell me whether it worked or not you know i i think that that was something that i hadn't seen in books before and i wanted to just test it out so so yeah there's kind of like a dreaded letters is the band that she goes back to see she kind of thinks it's all about that um but it's not really about that that's it's it's a important like part of her being a music fan but there's a lot more to her life and you know what she's looking for than that We talk about those things from our past, but we do it we do it because we kind of enjoy the idea of living back in that time. I want to quote your own book to you. Forgive me for doing this. But you say when when she's kind of reached what we think might be the end of her journey, she had started off with this list, you know, like the dreaded letters was on the list, Lena was on the list, you know, that she's got these objectives. And then once she's there. It, that's not what happens. Like that's my expectation. And then, like you said, you decided to let her sit in a space and live with her in that space. And so it says the only thing that mattered for Darby was talking about more meaningless, stupid things with her best friend again. And that meant everything. Yeah. And that, that kind of hit me. I was just like, okay, so this is really what it's all about. It's like what we do. We talk about stupid, meaningless, you know, movies that we loved and music that we loved, but it's because it takes us back. And with a lot of our listeners, they've got kids who are, you know, like a spacey kid who's maybe just learning about this stuff, but they, they get to live in that experience with them. I'll tell you, in 1996, I, I went to Europe and I flew into Amsterdam and yeah. the whole coffee shop story that I've got to, <laughs> I've got too. So when you got to that part of the book, I was like, Oh, wow, this is, I mean, this is hitting me on all kinds of, all kinds of levels, but it's, it is really that what we probably loved about that time period was not necessarily the, the pop culture stuff that we talked about. It was experiencing that with our best friends and going through. Yeah, are, best friends. are you guys both Oklahoma Sooners fans? Like diehards or what? Yeah, yeah. I'm a diehard. Yeah. I mean, they could suck for a decade and you're still going to go to their games. You're still going to like, if you have kids, you're going to kind of bring them along and, and have them feel the experience. And it doesn't really have to do with who's coaching or who's who's playing. Like, you know, historically the Cubs suck and we've had some good uh, stints here. But, um, you know, my kid grew up knowing that he dislikes the White Sox and he likes the Cubs, even if he doesn't know, you know, uh, who's starting tonight on the mound. So, I think, you know, music and, and sports and all those things, like we all kind of latch on to things that we love. And some of it is about what goes on in the, you know, whether it's following a sports team or following a, a band or a scene, but a lot of it's just the experience. And, you know, yeah, Amsterdam was, I, I don't know. I think that was like, we were the first generation that did that. Like we got 500 bucks in our pocket. We got a little time. Like our, we got these, we have a job, but we know our job's not going to be our career. So I'm like, why not plan some time to just go walk around Europe and see something different and, end up on the other side of the ocean and you're, you're culture shocked when there's not skyscrapers everywhere and people are speaking a different language 
and it's different than how you expected and there's no strip malls and it's just like you know i try to tell my kid my kid's 16 i try to tell him about that he's been to europe a couple times just you know with us and i think he appreciates other culture but i don't know if he gets that culture shock that we got like uh, i remember like as a kid going to the the inner city as we called it you know from the sub philly's philly suburbs to the to, to the city and just being like shocked that like wow you know smells different looks different the street food they have street food here that i can't get in my little suburb yeah i just you know uh, maybe i'm just a generational thing just kind of fascinated with like little experiences and yeah, it sounds like some of that came through, so I'm glad. I'm glad you guys enjoyed or picked up on some of that. Yeah, so I meant to I meant to actually ask this when we started. So 1996, which is when our when Darby goes back to time. That's oh, by the way, I noticed that her first concert was Huey Lewis. Yeah, <laughs> who of course had the song back in time. I don't know if that was purposeful or not, but <laughs> good job. Um, and in so in 1996, I was actually playing in a band. I had started playing shows at you know bars and stuff like that, and then went to Europe. What were you doing in '96? I got married in '96. Oh wow! Yeah, you're so old. But you know, <laughs> you got married. Yes, I got married. married. Yes. To my wife, Kathy, Maybe. that you know very oh well. Oh my gosh. But uh, so we pop out in September of 96, I think, right around there. I got married in August of 96. So I was telling D, I can't remember five things that happened in 2016, but when you dropped me off in 96, okay, it, it's very vivid in my imagination of what's going on in, in the world. So I, I had a great time uh, revisiting 96. And I'll, I'll just touch on something you said earlier. The person that I want to hang out the, with the most is darby number one but rachel oh yeah yeah well i mean you have a picture that she she looks like uh jessica chastain in a leather jacket maybe but um mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean it was like uh that was another like a couple of characters like her and spacey actually kind of popped up later when i'm thinking like i've got a my, my editor that i hired kind of said you gotta you gotta set some limits and put some guardrails up here like well the first thing was if she could just come and go as she wants back in time like that's not going to work like you need to have a timer or like you think about movies where there's a heist or like a bomb's going to blow up like the hero doesn't just think oh well i got you know a couple weeks to diffuse this bomb because otherwise that movie wouldn't work so um we did that and I, I changed that but i also um you know a lot of obviously you could tell a lot of this is about grunge and indie and alternative music and you know i suppose if you love uh celine dion or phil collins 1990s movies you know hits you're probably going to be angry our characters and narrator rip on that stuff and even Depeche Mode a little bit but there's a little something in there for everybody and I, I wanted Darby's kind of music snobbishness which I have a little bit of that going on me and maybe you guys too I wanted that to be tested that she likes this girl named Rachel who's a metalhead and like how could you like hair metal in the mid 90s what's what's I mean she does like some cool stuff like Motorhead and Tool and stuff like that but you know that that, that it kind of pushes her buttons a little bit because I remember when I was in, you know, 12th grade or freshman year in college, like I could have liked this girl. But if she was into like radio pop, I just would have had no interest because I can't really communicate. And you realize those things don't matter when you grow up. But uh, maybe that was a 90s thing that, you know, you know, oh, you like you like country. Well, I'm into I'm into the Ramones. I, we can't we can't hang out like that was actually, a thing, you know, in, in the late 80s, early 90s when I was in, you know, my 20s and. I don't know. That, that's something I, a theme I wanted to play with that was fun 
to find a character who is like I basically made her game to play that. So I will say this: you so you've got it, listeners check out the playlist on Spotify. He's got a playlist that's called "90 Days in the '90s" as well. That is full, chocked full of. 90s music that is indie underground what i would expect from the book but then thrown in the middle of it i'm i I see tlc and unpretty and i'm like what what how did this (laughs) how did this radio pop jam fall into this mix so tell me about what were you what were you listening to in 96 yourself uh so 96 i was 24 so this was you know i'll throw some other context context in there this is um you know i remembered that so i'll just say like in the summer i want to say I'm July, August 96. I come home. My roommate's like, we got Dennis Rodman today. I'm like, yeah, I know. I heard that on the radio. Like, this is the first, second run of the Bulls. Like, yeah. literally, we actually would go to the bar twice a week. Bar is silent while the game's on. Bulls down 15 with two minutes to go. And they're, we know they're going to win. Um, <laughs> but I also had to slip at some concerts, too. Like, I would go to Lounge Jacks when I could afford a $15 ticket to see bands. Like, a lot of it was, like, testing the waters. Like, I saw... Bands that I don't, I'm not super into now, like Chavez and Pavement and uh, Elastica. But like, I kind of stuck with the ones that I'm a huge Anglophile. So if you see the other part of my room, you would see uh, a Stone Roses poster. I've got some like, I love the Verb and Oasis, and uh, I like old British music too, like the Who. So I think I was probably still stuck in that. I, I probably of the grunge set. Allison Change is my my favorite, just because I think Lane Staley is just such, such an amazing underrated singer. Uh, and but the cool part about ni- the 1990s and 96 was like, you know, it's, it was so much different than 1988. Like in 1988, you turn on the radio and it'd be like Debbie Gibson and you know just like pop and Boys to Men. And occasionally, if you got to the right radio station, you might hear a Pixie song. You might hear The Cure, and that was like, oh, well, this is like the music I like. In 1996, it was all you know, Oasis, Garbage, the Pixies, the Breeders, like there was never music that didn't appeal to me or that was uncreative or people in the band didn't play the instruments. So there was so much there that I felt like I was, it was like a fire hose. I was trying to consume and just be, you know, conscious of like, wow, there's another great song by a band I never heard of that, you know, maybe puts out two or three. So, yeah, I mean, pretty much like the, the, the English music that I was always into. I loved Ned's Atomic Dust Band. They kind of didn't really do much after 94, but I saw them when I first came to Chicago. And then, like, I was just almost, you know, it was it was a great time to be open-minded and consume different types of music that I wasn't a diehard super fan of only a, a genre. Like, I had my friends who were all into grunge, and I had my friends who were into New Order and kind of alternative dance music. I wasn't that. I was kind of like, give me a little bit of everything. Because I'm, you know, dub reggae or or non grunge, you know, metal metal influenced rock. I was into all of it, so I must have had a lot more bandwidth than I have now because uh, I feel like my brain's shrinking in my fifties here. But uh, the music kind of is like a, taking like taking vitamins every day kind of keeps your brain working, keeps you alive. So uh, that was a long answer right there, but there, there was so much to enjoy that I'm not sure that I could pinpoint like one band or one subgenre really. So we're talking to books, so we might as well talk books too. You mentioned Hemingway, you mentioned T.S. Eliot in there. Who's who's your inspiration or who do you want to emulate when you're writing at this point um, of the authors that you've read? Yeah, there's a couple. Um, obviously, I mean, people talk about Nick Hornby when they hear about what my book is about. And I you know High Fidelity was a great book. 
Um, it was, you know, the movie was shot here in Chicago. It takes place in Chicago, even though the book, the story of the book was in London. And as you probably know, Hulu did a series with Zoe Kravitz where it takes place in Brooklyn appropriately for the 2000s. So Nick Hornby's books are great. I love Fever Pitch because I'm a huge English football fan, soccer fan. But uh, I love like a couple things like George Plimpton. You know, he's like obviously an upper class person who tried to, I think his struggle was to associate with the common man, so to speak. Uh, put out a book called Paper Lion where he mm-hmm. kind of just did what Eli Manning just did. Like he showed up to Detroit Lions I guess training camp in 1968 is like a third string quarterback. And he was, I think up to that point, he, he they had let him play in a preseason game. And he was the only quarterback to successively lose yardage in every play that he played. <laughs> uh, I think that book's hard to find. I think it's hard to find out. I don't think it's out of print. It's called Paper Lion. He's got a book called The X Factor where he talks, he hangs out with the Bush family in Texas. And they're like the Bush family, like George W and George Sr. And Neil, like, and the, and the daughters, like they play, horseshoes when they're on vacation and they're super competitive about it like it's a bragging right thing so those two writers are the main thing but i you know i grew up lo- loving um i like to read sports articles in non-sports publications um like the new york times saturday always had great quirky articles my favorite uh broadcaster of all time was dick shap because he's like conversational like normal people are so there's a lot of influences that way uh i'm not like you know, 18-year-old Stephen King, where I could say that I read 8,000 books growing up, and that's why I'm a writer. Like, I actually probably didn't, probably haven't read as much as I would like to think that I could have. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, those writers, and then also Michael Chabon, um, I kind of first got took, turned on to his movies. I think the the movie called uh, The Wonder Boys is hilarious, so I, I went and read his books after that. Yeah, Hornby, uh, Michael Chabon, George Plimpton, um, I think because those people do great dialogue, they talk about nuts and bolts, things like sports and music, and they keep it conversational. I think all that has kind of driven me to write the way I write. And I hope I'm, you know, in the ballpark, but who knows? I remember George Plimpton as the guy who would introduce the cartoons on the Disney channel yeah. when they were having the masterpiece theater style of cartoons. Only later did I find out because he did it with like several different, like he did uh, open net and like, he would just do that. He just, this every man, not particularly athletic guy that, that would get on with these sports teams. And I just thought that was the coolest idea I've ever heard. Tim Carver did a show on HBO a long time ago that talked about the George Plimpton story. I remember as a kid watching that, just fascinated that there's this writer willing to play football just to see what it was like, you know? Yeah. I would have thought that I like, cause he's kind of a lanky guy. I would have thought that he would be fearful of getting injured. But I think in that time, like maybe in the 60s and 70s, like, I, I again, I haven't read all their books, but like one of my favorite movies from the 80s is The Right Stuff. And Tom Wolfe wrote that. I think he did it as a series for Rolling Stone or something. But he basically was like, I want to interview these guys to find out why they're willing to put their, themselves in danger for this dubious thing, which now we look at astronauts and we think oh, it's like got to be the best job. But in the 60s, when they didn't know whether the rocket was going to blow up, like that was kind of a risky thing. So I think it created a whole new, they call it new journalism, where a bunch of authors would write, you know, mostly real life stories, but kind of add a little style to it and, and, you know, take some liberties with the way that people, real people are depicted as characters in terms of their bravado or the way that they cast themselves. And I think that that's, we don't even think about that today. Um, We know that like maybe, you know, Shaq on the TV commercials is different than Shaq in the locker room and Shaq hanging out with his kids. And we're okay with those different depictions of a person that we consider like one person. But yeah, I think, you know, those, a lot of the writers from the the latter couple decades of the 20th century have 
influenced me as a writer and just sort of the way we think. So. Jason posed this question as we were going through the book. He was like, you know, what, what sporting events would you go back to? What concerts would you go back to? And I'm not a, I'm not as big of a sports guy, but concert wise, I've already kind of touched on it. I, you know, I'd love to see the guys who we've lost before we lost them when they were kind yeah. of at their peak. And I would love to do it in like small venue. I remember that I would hear that Pearl Jam would show up at some, you know, small club and just, unannounced just come on stage and start playing and if i could be a part of you know part of the audience for one of those shows i would definitely do that yeah. but small venue on some stuff i would i would honestly have loved to see and andrew wood play i'd, I'd be interested to see because he was like you know he treated the bars they were playing in like a an arena so it, yeah. i had to think that, that would be fun what do you what do you got jason what are you thinking okay so i'm gonna do my top five and then andy will give you a chance to do your top five musical and sports related, you know, time travel. Dreams, yeah. Okay. All right. So for me, I'm going wide, right? I'm not keeping it just to Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Beatles and Shea stadium for me, number one live yeah. aid in 1985, U2 doing the downtown LA concert where they do where the streets have no name with that just kind of impromptu concert in the streets. Yeah. I think that'd be really cool to go to the Moscow peace festival in 1989. I'm a big hair metal guy, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think that'd be a lot of fun. And then finally, you know, I mean, Alice in Chains with Lane Staley would be incredible seeing Prince or Michael Jackson, anything like that would be awesome. Yeah. But I saw that Metallica played a concert in Antarctica in 2013. Really? And I, yes. And I'm like, dude, that would be the bomb. Do they play for like uh, the researchers down there or what? Yeah. Okay. It's like 200 people. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Right. So, okay, Andy, we're putting you on the spot, man. Five dream time travel concerts that you would attend. All right. So I grew up in the Philadelphia area. I remember I was 13 when Live Aid came on. At the time, I was really the Judas Priest. And there's there's no way that – so I go to concerts with my kid now. We're going to Dinosaur Jr. next Friday, and he's 16. There's no way my parents would have driven downtown for me to see Judas Priest at Live Aid, <laughs> even if the, the tickets were cheap. So I'm going to say – uh because I think the strange of the concert, I remember this from TV, was like Joan Baez sings with Dalga guitar, Billy Ocean comes on, and then at noon it's Judas Priest. I'm like, that doesn't go together, but that's pretty awesome. Billy Ocean, wow. Billy Ocean and I feel like Rob Halford, you know, he sometimes will come out with a, a motorcycle on stage. I don't remember if he did that. I feel like he brought it out for like one song. It was like, rrr, rrr. so that'd be number one. Um, I'm not a fan of anything having to do with Russia, especially Putin. So I will say I'm going to go with. <laughs> The Prodigy playing Red Square and, you know, leaving by flipping the bird. Like, I think they rocked Red Square and then they just went to go fly back to England to see a West Ham game the next day. Uh, number three. So I think it was New Year's Day 96. Don't quote me on this. I'd have to look it up. But the House of Blues in Chicago opened up. I think that was the day. But the first act was James Brown. So oh, and I, I heard like basically like you're not going to get tickets if you're trying to get tickets. Like if you're, you know, your CEO or you're. You know, your Billy Corgan or your Eddie Vedder coming in for the weekend. Yeah, you might get in, but it was, you know, I'd love to see that. House of Blues is great acoustics. They're all designed that way. And to see James Brown while he's alive, you know, in 96, doing doing James Brown, would I'd have to put that. Yeah. Uh, so last two, um, 
the I think the last show that that before Lounge Axe closed, and I mentioned Lounge Axe is one of the venues, and might be the first venue that Darby goes to in 90 Days in the 90s. Uh, it's a great little club. Uh, if you watch High Fidelity, they actually go to see Marie DeSalle at Lounge Axe. Um, but I, I remember that, that the Pumpkins played their very la- the very last show before the venue shut its doors. So I'm going to say that for number four. And, you know, Special Pumpkins was just here a couple of days ago. They played Metro and like all my radio friends went. So I'm a little jealous about that. So I guess that's number four. And uh, I don't know, since I'm a, a British fan, I know that the, the, the sound wasn't supposedly great on this, but I'd go back to, I'd go see the Stone Roses at Spike Island in 1990. I didn't know about it until afterwards, but, you know, I was a, <laughs> a big fan of the band. Big fan of a band that doesn't play gigs and then gets back together and plays them only in the UK and then breaks up before I get a chance to see them. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go to, you know, the Merseyside, England to, to see that outdoor gig just to kind of see it. So those are, those would be my five, I guess. Okay. 96, I saw Smashing Pumpkins play. Yeah. I saw yeah. them. In Which Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay. And had front. I wasn't even a big Pumpkins fan. Like, I mean, I was just like, hey, guys, we got tickets and we happen to also have front row tickets. Oh. So we're like, okay, we'll go. The girl I went with, Billy Corgan, took her on stage. I was mm. like, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> That's a I don't think you're coming back. <laughs> nice. okay. So he did like a Bruce Springsteen dancing in the dark thing where he reaches out and brings her up on stage, like with yeah. Courtney Cox, it basically. Was exactly like that. Like she got a kiss. She kind of awkwardly danced. It was very, very much the, yeah. And uh, the night was over for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's go to sports. Uh, I love how your your book uh, really one of the tentpole events for me anyway because I didn't grow up in Chicago is the Bulls, right? Yeah. Everybody in the world followed Michael Jordan and the Bulls at that time, and so that cemented that idea of where we are in the story. Yeah. But I'm gonna give my five, and then I give your five top five time travel sporting events. Yeah. All right. So number five for me, Kirk Gibson's homer in the 1988 World Series. Okay. Not a big Dodgers fan or even an Oakland A's fan. I just want to see that event happen live. I, I think that would be yeah. amazing. Um, I'd love to see the 92 Dream Team play in Barcelona. The greatest team ever assembled. Are you kidding me? Yes, absolutely. Number three for me, I want to see Tyson and Buster Douglas in Tokyo in 1990. Okay. The biggest, baddest man in the world gets knocked out. Biggest upset of all time. I'll go back to Tyson versus Spinks where – I went to go get a Coke and some chips and I missed the fight. I would go back just so I could see that 90 second fight. Or something. Yeah. Number two for me, uh, game six of the Mets Red Sox world series in 1986. Wait, which game? Game six. Was that when Bill Buckner, like the ball goes through his legs. Okay. Yes. 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 Red Sox fan, obviously. I, at the time I was a, just kind of a bandwagon New York Mets fan at that moment. So, Uh, and then number one, the miracle on ice. Come on, that's number one for me. Okay, Andy Fry, you're on the hot seat. Top five sporting events. Well, because I couldn't get tickets the whole uh three plus years that Jordan was back with Bulls, I was gonna say any of the any of the NBA final games, uh, from 96, 97, 98. I mean, probably like I, you know, I'd have to go to Utah, unfortunately, to see it, but to see Jordan, you know, dash one way and dust Brian Russell and put it back, uh, <laughs> And actually, right behind me, I've got the the, the shot is right there over my shoulder. Where oh, yeah, oh, yeah. When you look at the crowd. There's all these 
Utah Jazz fans were like, no, no, no. <laughs> one kid who's a Bulls fan apparently in the in the background going like, yeah. Oh my god. Uh, you know, so like Jordan's making a shot and and Brian Russell's like over here halfway on the floor. So that would probably be, <laughs> I guess I'd just say that. Um number two, I'd I'd say probably like that uh not to harp on the bulls, but the, the, the I want to say it's the 1985 um the slam dunk contest, the one the first one where Jordan really like cleaned up. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think uh, that poster. That one, I think is that that's the one. It was him and Dominique Wilkins. If I, I could have the, the 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 year wrong, but yeah, let's say just the Jordan versus Wilkins and Jordan wins the yep. slam dunk contest, even though it's not like official sanctioned uh, thing. Uh, I would probably the other three, like uh, you know, that Alabama Auburn game a couple of years ago, where Auburn um, caught the field goal that didn't become a field goal and ran it back and uh, scored a touchdown. Awesome. Yes. I'm not even a huge college football fan, but I'll say for the fourth one, uh, most of my family is Ohio State fans. And I loved the first year of the BCS playoffs seeing, um, I think it was new, was it a New Year's Eve? I feel like my family all went to bed and I, I watched Ohio State bludgeon Alabama on national TV and then keep, you know, they kept it. There's a couple pick sixes and they just completely destroyed and embarrassed Alabama. The first time yeah, out, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be. I mean, yeah, Ohio State fans are pretty obnoxious, and maybe even more so than than Alabama fans could be. But that just had to be, you know, something to see. Um, so yeah, I would, I'd probably go with that one. And out of the, the fifth one, um, I don't know. Like, uh, just throw a wild card in there. I don't dislike Ros- Ronda Rousey, but I would like to see Holly Holm knock her out just because it was so unexpected, and wow. it's kind of like hell froze over. You know, and sort of skill and sort of the traditional side of that sport trumped the bullet. And that's pretty much the same thing as Buster Douglas. Well, it's in this in the same ballpark as Buster Douglas knocking out Tyson or Lennox Lewis knocking out Tyson. Like the big behemoth that was supposed to level the field got clocked. And yeah, I don't I don't uh, dislike Ronda Rousey, but that was you know yeah. Let's throw uh, some of the best women fighters in there for the top of the list. I'll go with that one. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so we're more 80s-centric, but we definitely have fallen back into the 70s and and dipped heavily into the 90s as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want to know your opinion on some of the 90s things, 90s movies and music that yeah. we've covered. Give okay. us your we're gonna give you matchups. You tell us which one you pick. And if you All feel right, like on. you if you feel like you need to explain your choice, feel free to explain it too. Okay, this is a little bit of a lightning round. If you want to expand on this, you feel free. Go for it. All right, so earlier this year we did Goodfellas versus The Godfather. The Godfather is sort of the the archetype of the perfect movie, but I enjoy Goodfellas more. Okay. So the one like the first time I, I saw it, actually, it was probably like '96, and my roommate at the time was a a film school grad. He actually is the the model for the the character in my book named Rod. Nice. He's kind of James Bond obsessive, and I think it's like I was like, yeah, I've never seen Goodfellas. Like, what? Okay, we're gonna watch it right now, and watch <laughs> we watch it right now, and. It was like a, I don't know, it was just like a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, it was worth it to just stop what I was doing to watch Goodfellas. So I'm going to say that one. Is your buddy short? Oh, yeah. And did he date supermodel? A couple times. Yeah, he had some, he had some tall, glamorous women that he oh, did. Awesome. I mean, all of those are exaggerations, which is what you do in fiction. But um, yeah, there's a, there's a five story where he uh, hung out with Wesley Snipes one night in Chicago when he was in town for for blade Two, promoting blade Two in like 98 or something. And wow. you know, all kinds of great stories about like how weird Wesley Snipes is and 
<laughs> I go on doing on a doing a different episode on that. I can I can even talk talk you about that online. But uh, yeah, Wesley Snipes is uh, apparently a he's uh, he thinks he knows how to do kung fu. And he <laughs> whatever so may run like haze but he hits like (laughs) (laughs) always been on black for a while all right here you go this is a future episode we're hoping to do collective soul versus live okay i don't dislike collective soul i know a lot of people think they're like post grunge or there's a i've I've heard a lot of people kind of level criticism is like oh there's a radio band kind of grunge wannabe i think they're just regular dudes who put out an album or two and but i i don't know i mean I really like mental jewelry. I got this conversation with somebody a couple of days ago, the first live album that came out when I was maybe a sophomore in college, which is less grungy. It's more, I don't know, it's just unique. And uh, I don't know. So I'm going to say probably live because I think that they have a little bit more musical depth and yeah, they just, I don't want to say either one's better, but there's a little bit more of uh, I'm going to listen a little closer when I listen to live. Okay. All right. Here you go. Comedies. Dumb and Dumber versus something about Mary. I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> they both grew on me. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's kind of a toss-up, but I'm going to say Dumb and Dumber just because um, even though I know that you know the jokes are sophomoric, yeah, I can go back and watch that movie anytime, and it's like still funny. Yeah. Okay. Caddyshack versus Happy Gilmore. I, th- I think Caddyshack, just because it's so much more quotable and classic. But uh, of Adam Sandler movies... Cappy Gilmore is one of the better ones. It's one of the ones he didn't screw up by being Adam Sandler. All right, here you go. The Use Your Illusion Guns N' Roses albums versus yeah. Metallica's Black Album. I'm going to say Use Your Illusion 2 primarily, but either one will do. Yeah. Okay. I'm a Guns N' Roses fan. I just watched the Metallica, Um, you know, like my cable provider, I think it was Xfinity, was like, only on this week, uh, Metallica set at Lollapalooza. And I don't tend to be interested in Lollapalooza because it's more of a pop fest now. But it came out. I'm like, yeah, I'm watching this, and it was, you know, it was like an hour of Metallica just being Metallica. And the cool part was like, you could see the fans and like all the metalheads who came there just for that were up front. There's no <laughs> like, oh my god, I think I like Metallica because right. they're, you know, like there's dudes who you can tell like have the neck tattoos been following them for decades that were at <laughs> up front for that show. So it was a real deal. Uh, I can't disparage either one of those bands, but I just lean more Guns N' Roses because I like them better. So okay. All right, Allison Chain's Dirt album versus Stone Temple Pilots Core, both released same day '92. Yeah, Dirt's not my favorite album, although it's a pretty solid one. But I like Allison Chain's better than STP. I don't dislike STP, but yeah, I'm gonna go with Allison Chain's always. Okay, cool. Last one, Pearl Jam's Ten album versus Nirvana's Nevermind. Kind of depends on what mood I'm in. Like I've got tons of super like Pearl Jam people. Like all their golf clubs have like a Pearl Jam. You know, like, a, a, you know, the things you put on your golf clubs to keep them like I've got those friends <laughs> uh, who are just, you know, like they've been to 50 concerts. So I appreciate them. But I think, um, yeah, I've it took me a while to I, if you asked me in 1999, let's say, like, do you really like Nevermind? I'd be like, yeah, I, it's it's good. I've It's really grown on me. And I'm not like a depressive, sad person ever. I, I have a pretty good life. But in case I want to put on Nevermind, and just kind of feel it. What, what? Uh, Kurt Cobain was feeling and, and talking about. I think in retrospect, the emotions of his lyrics and I mean, the musicianship is great, but simple. And I just think that now more than ever that you realize how much, how good that album is. Never mind is. And 
Pearl Jam's great too with 10, but I didn't get it back then when it came out, but I get it now that Nevermind is just such a great album. I'm going to dive just a bit deeper because this is a point of contention between Jason and I. <laughs> on, on Nevermind, yeah. there's a song called Territorial Pissings. Mm -hmm. I think it's punk gold. Jason thinks it's absolute trash. What, okay. are you, what are your thoughts? I think it's punk gold, but they have some other songs like Love Buzz that are better punk punk gold. So I think like my favorite song, um, I think probably I think the best song on Nevermind is Come As You Are, um, in terms of like a tune lyrically, maybe lithium. Yeah, it's all subjective, isn't it? So Yes. I, I, I think that's one of the things that I like best about the book is that you've got guys, I mean, from the outset, even when she's in 21st century, you've got guys in her record store who are arguing about the merits of various types of music. And it's a conversation that you can have with anybody. And as long as you keep it friendly and good nature, yeah. it's a great conversation to have. You know, you can you can act shocked and dismayed, but it's all really just in good fun. Okay, D, so this week we've got a Shirley Showcase from our good friend Amber Lewis of the Docking Bay 77 podcast. She's going to talk about Lethal Weapon versus Die Hard, which we covered back a Christmas or two ago, and I'm anxious to hear what she has to say. First of all, let's just make sure that if she says that these are Christmas movies, then we automatically, she's like best friends with us. Absolutely. Okay, let's hear what she has to say. Hello, Shirley fans. This is Amber Lewis, frequent guest of the Docking Bay 77 podcast, here to discuss two of the greatest Christmas movies of all time. That's right, Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. First, we have Bruce Willis as a New York City cop, John McClane, who finds himself trapped in Nakatomi Plaza on Christmas Eve as the great Alan Rickman, together with Alexander Goodenough and a team of terrorists, take control of the building to steal $640 million worth of bearer bonds. Their meticulous plans are thwarted, however, by our cowboy hero, McClane, who acts as the self-described fly in the ointment, the monkey in the wrench, the pain in the ass. McLean, with the support of Officer Al Powell via walkie-talkie, uses his street smarts and sense of humor to outwit the glorified bank robbers and save his wife and the day. Elsewhere in the City of Angels, Detective Roger Murtaugh, played by Danny Glover, is forced to spend his last week before retirement partnered up with Mel Gibson's Detective Martin Riggs, who may be crazy or just acting crazy to draw a psycho pension, but should definitely be registered as a lethal weapon. The two detectives have to try to not kill themselves or each other while tracking down the shadow company who is trafficking heroin from Asia to the United States. The two detectives save Murtaugh's daughter and the city while forming a true and lasting partnership that is sealed by the sharing of the world's worst Christmas dinner. With this matchup, we all need to first come to the agreement that these are in fact Christmas movies, even down to the detail that they both have happy endings with a Christmas carol playing us out. As to which movie is better, it's a challenge to choose when one is a buddy cop movie and the other is an everyman's hero movie. Lethal Weapon is a much darker story and Danny Glover does not get near enough credit for his amazing work. But the villains in this movie are by far the weakest and less interesting point. However, Die Hard has a much more relatable hero, a stronger cast of supporting characters, and one of the best movie villains ever. The comedy lands, the effects are greater, and it's generally a more fun movie. 
that I will definitely stop and watch no matter what. Put down the remote. I'm in for the long haul. And that's what makes it the winner in this matchup. That's your Shirley Showcase for this episode. Thanks for listening and check out Docking Bay 77. Okay, Amber. Absolutely. These are fantastic Christmas movies and we love your pick. Yeah, we are obviously on the same page. If you haven't heard our episode on those two movies, go check them out. But we are diehard, diehard fans, if you will. <laughs> we're diehardly the weapon fans, to be honest. Yeah, but we're dieharder. <laughs> and Alan Rickman is one of the greatest movie villains of all time. Yes, and since he's moving up to kidnapping, you should be more polite. <laughs> Amber, thank you so much for doing that for us. We sure appreciate you. If you get a chance, go check out our friends Dayton Johnson and Amber Lewis over at the Bay 77 podcast. Thanks, Amber. Yeah, but, but those people are, are in record stores everywhere. Like... You can get an argument with somebody in a record store if you want to just by a side conversation you picked up. I'm like, how can you say that? You know, how can you say that this version of the song is better than that? Yeah, that was that was one fun part of the book that just kind of happened organically. So I'm glad that you like that. If you want to take the gray line with me, time travel back to the 90s. We can go uh, fight with those people if you want over our, our music tastes. That's sort of the spirit of the book, I think. Yeah. We would love to take the gray line and travel back with you to the 90s. That would be awesome. Hey, um, we're going to wrap it up. Before we go, can you tell people where they can get your book? Yeah. So if you want to go to 90daysin90s.com, that's my website. It's 90daysin90s with the numbers. Um, and that's uh, direct for me, and I'll sign it for you, send some swag. And also, you can buy it on Amazon too. Um, it's Amazon or, or any other place you buy books. Um, I suppose buying it direct from the author. You know, if you really want to make sure that Jeff Bezos has more stupid cowboy hats, go to Amazon. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, like uh, we all buy stuff on Amazon. So it, it is there. And, and um, if you want to get it from there, that's fine too. But uh, I can sign you a copy if you're interested in coming to 90 days in the 90s.com. Other than that, if, if you're in Chicago, there are a couple places like uh, Reckless Records and Rattleback Records have a couple copies. And I try to get the local record stores to, and, and bookstores too, to, to participate too. So it just depends on where you buy books and couple places there you can get it awesome well dean i had a great time with this one yeah to to our listeners if you're looking for a book that will bring you back to the 90s and grunge and music and sports and also just hanging out with your friends and just the the importance of being in that moment and just loving on people who maybe you 20 years later didn't see again i think that's i think that kind of was one of my favorite features is that you did you did appreciate hey one of the things that was great about this was the people that i got to spend that time with so i think it's a really well done book anybody that is listening please check it out we love it it has sparked conversation between d and i about people in his past people in my past friends that are long gone that type of thing so that's been fun too awesome well i'm glad you guys liked it and thanks for having me on it's been great having you andy anything any parting words that you'd like to uh, give to people yeah, I'm, uh, Phil Collins, I'm sorry I don't like your stuff. For the 90s, but, you know, the, the book is about music snobs. Somebody's got to get beat up. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, I've been listening to some like early 80s Genesis in the car a little bit. I'm like, actually, you know, like once I got rid of Peter Gabriel, I like Genesis. But then, you know, yes. then you, you give Phil Collins $8 million to come up with a sappy song for Lion King 2 and it all goes to hell. So uh, <laughs> we all have our hangups about music and that's part of what makes it fun, I guess. For the record, I love 80s Phil Collins. So Yeah, well, it's, it is yeah. it is a bunch of fun. So everybody, please go check out that book. Thank you for joining us. Uh, remember to go leave a review on our 
podcast page. If you want to be an executive producer, definitely uh, go over to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com backslash Shirley Podcast. Jason, anything else? Go to 90daysinthe90s.com and pick up Andy's book. Okay, one more 90s cliche. Yes. Later, dude. (laughs) Check you later. (laughs) 